Okay, so this is actually part two. So we've already studied Genesis 1 through 5. And um, I'll do a little bit of review uh, for those who may be... How many... Is there anybody that's here that was not in the first class? Okay, so we do have a few. Yes. Good. So we'll do some some review because this is... As you see, this is actually part 14 that we're doing today. So uh, I have to very quickly uh, get you up to date on... 13 parts that we've already done. and uh, So I did the first 12 parts, and then Pastor Gabe was here last week to do part 13. So uh, what we're studying is the first 11 chapters of Genesis and how they are the foundation for a biblical worldview, for us to be able to look at the world through the lens of the Scriptures. Chapter 1 through 11 of Genesis is really the foundation for all of that. Um, it's the foundation for the rest of Scripture. And it's the foundation for being able to see the world through the lens of Scripture. And so uh, everybody has a worldview, and worldviews answer certain basic questions. All of them do. Uh, so all worldviews answer the question, who am I? Uh, the nature of mankind, anthropology. And so we're going to look at this through the lens of Scripture, through biblical anthropology, what does God say? Who does God say that people are? Where do I come from? Origins. Who is in charge? Who's the rule maker? Who's the sovereign? All worldviews answer that question. How should I live my life? The rules, morality. Um, and what happens when I die? What's the future? Does this organization have a future? And the Bible, of course, answer as a worldview, answers all of these questions. And so we've been studying uh, primarily the first three. Uh, so the, the, the first few chapters of Genesis really lay down the answers to those first three questions. So how does the Bible answer that first question, who am I? So we are created in the image of God. And so we talked about in great detail, what does that mean to be created in the image of God? Um, And therefore of infinite value, each person is of infinite value. Why is each person of value? Because we're created in the image of God. Where do I come from? How, how, How did we become created in the image of God? What did that look like? And so we studied in Genesis chapter one, the creation of the universe by God from nothing, ex nihilo, uh, the whole world created in six ordinary 24-hour days, uh, how he created, what order he created in, and then culminating in the creation of mankind, men and women. Um, so that's where we come from. And then who's in charge? And so we've come back to this a number of times in the first 13 parts, that God is sovereign over his creation. And so therefore he, and he alone, has the authority to make rules. And no one has authority to set aside God's rules. Because um, since I am not your creator, I do not have authority to make rules for you. So God, in his uh, infinite wisdom, has created, has delegated authority to enforce the rules that he has made. For example, um, Parents in a family. He's delegated parents in the family authority to make rules for the kids. Government officials. He's delegated the authority to enforce the rules that he has made 
to these government officials. But this is very important. Study very carefully the passages about government in the Bible. God does not delegate his authority to make the rules to government authorities, only to enforce the rules that he has made. And so this, this tension comes out in our modern world in things like the definition of marriage. So in Genesis chapter 2, God defines marriage in chapter 2, 24, between a man and a woman. The, the, no government, society, or person has the authority to change God's rule in this respect. Uh, God, when God invented marriage, there were only two people in the world. There were no cultures, no societies, no governments. Um, and so no culture, society, or government has the authority to set aside God's rule for what a marriage is. They have delegated authority to enforce rules, but not he has not delegated his authority to make up new rules. Okay, uh, how should I live my life? And so that is revealed uh, throughout Scripture, what, how, people, what, how people are supposed to act. And so in the very beginning, God only gave one rule. Don't eat of that one tree right over there. He made that one rule for Adam and Eve. And, of course, they weren't able to keep that one rule. Um, and then what happens when I die? Um, that's eschatology in the future. And we'll, talk, we'll touch a little bit on that actually today, what happens when I die, eschatology. So all worldviews answer these questions in some way or other. And so what we're really interested in is, well, how does the Bible answer these questions? So uh, as a quick review uh, also of what we did. So Genesis chapter 1 is, of course, the creation. Uh, we have six days of creation and seventh day God rested. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. It uh, gives a little bit more detail of how Adam and Eve were made. Adam is made from dust. Eve is uh, fashioned from a rib from Adam. And then God makes a garden. He puts him in the garden. He puts him to work. And so work... Um, is, is something that came before the fall. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall and the consequences of the fall. They're expelled from the garden. Uh, the, the entire creation is cursed. Um, Adam and Eve um, are, are then destined to die. They're, they're doomed to die. Uh, they die spiritually right away. They die physically eventually, as we saw in chapter 5. Um, so that's chapter 3. And then chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. And so it, it, right away in, in the very first generation, uh, one brother kills another brother um, with the consequences of the fall. And then Genesis chapter 5 that, we, that uh, Pastor Gabe did last week, we follow the genealogy from Adam to Noah and notice that everybody dies. So let me do just a little bit of a review for... Uh, well, this is what we're going to start study today. So today, we're going to be in chapter 6, and we're going to talk about the preparation for the flood. So I have my, I have my preparation for the flood tie here. So preparation for the flood. So we're going to talk about the fact that the, the earth had become wicked. Um, the, we're going to talk about the sons of God and the Nephilim at the beginning of chapter 6, and what, who they are and what it's talking about there. Uh, mankind's depth of depravity and the coming judgment. Uh, that God uh, tells Noah that he's going to judge the earth. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that Noah was righteous. The Bible says he's righteous. What does that mean? Uh, why does the Bible say Noah is righteous? Uh, corruption on the earth and God commissioning a big boat. 
and, and giving some details about how this big boat is supposed to be built. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk more about that next week. So uh, let me just review from last week. So last week, uh, I wasn't here for the discussion, so if you have any lingering questions from last week, you can ask. Uh, so these Toledots, now the, bio, the Genesis is divided up into Toledot sections, um, and chapter 5 is the generations of Adam, or what came forth from Adam. Um, and it's a little bit unusual because it's, there's a, an additional phrase there with Toledot in the Hebrew, the book of. None of the other Toledots have that, the book of, the generations of, so-and-so, except for this, this one right here with Adam. Um, and so it talks about this word book, Sephar, and um, it would have originally probably been either a scroll or a stone tablet uh, that that word is talking about in Hebrew. And the same pattern is repeated in the genealogy in Matthew. So in the book of Matthew, uh, it also says the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Just like it says the book of the generations of Adam here in Genesis chapter 5. So there's a parallel there. Uh, the Greek, the book of the genealogy in Matthew 1 uh, is exactly the same Greek phrase as the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in, um, in the, the centuries before Christ, uh, Hebrew was becoming a dead language. And so... Uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders were concerned about that, and so they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, because Greek was the language that everybody knew. And that uh, we refer to that as the Septuagint. You'll see it uh, uh, abbreviated LXX, the 70. Septuagint means the 70, because it was 70 Hebrew scholars that translated it. So the Septuagint for Genesis 5 is the same Greek phrase as the Greek phrase in Matthew chapter 1 for the book of the genealogy of. And so this is a, a perfect parallel and it fits. The whole Bible fits together. And this really fits because it's in Genesis 5, it's the generations that proceed from the first man, Adam, going forward. And in Matthew chapter 1, it's the generations that precede Christ, the last Adam. And so it's very fitting that those phrases should be exactly the same for Genesis 5 and Matthew chapter 1. Um, then we saw last time that uh, these generations are followed from Adam and Eve all the way down through Noah. And uh, in these particular charts, I've got uh, ancestors of Jesus in red. So the Bible goes out of its way to follow one particular line. Uh, throughout the whole Old Testament, one particular line, and then Matthew, it summarizes it all. And that line is leading up to Christ. And the reason for that is because the Bible is a book about Jesus. It's a book about God's redemptive plan for mankind in Jesus Christ. Yes, go ahead, Doug. I wasn't here last week. Um, Neither was I. But can you help me understand, is just Genesis 5 a whole Toledot by itself? So, um, it's not exactly. So... The Toledot that begins the, the, the Toledot of Adam goes through chapter verse 8 of chapter 6. So the first eight verses of chapter 6 are also okay. part of this Toledot. So it starts at 5-1 mm-hmm. and it finishes at verse 8. Yes, 6-8. Six, six, eight. Eight. Mm-hmm. Very good. 
Uh, so we follow these generations, uh, Adam and Eve, Seth. So, but but he, they have Cain and Abel, and they have other sons and daughters. And so all throughout this, uh, this genealogy, there's others of sons and daughters. So people are proliferating throughout the earth. All these sets of other sons and daughters is uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of people. Now, why don't we follow those people? Does God not care about those people? No, of course God cares about those people. Um, and we'll see when we get to, further into the book of Genesis, uh, by the time of, of Abraham, there are people all over the world. We know from these, these descendants here and from uh, archaeological evidence that there were people in China, there were people in South America, there were people all over the world, but we, the Bible only follows Abraham and his descendants. Why is that? Because that's the line that's leading to Jesus Christ. Not because God doesn't care about those other people. He does care about those other people, but the Bible is telling us the story of God's plan of redemption of mankind, and that plan of redemption is through Jesus Christ, and so we follow the line of Jesus Christ. And so that's what's happening here in this genealogy. There's other sons and daughters, but the Bible is focused on this particular line that's uh, sometimes referred to as the seed line, because when we get to Abraham, we'll hear about the fact that that through Abraham's seed, singular, as Paul points out, the entire world will be blessed. Okay, and then we follow the generation Seth and Enos. And so the transliterations of these Hebrew names in different translations of the Bible are a little bit different sometimes. Just remember that they're originally in Hebrew, and this, these are in English, they're all transliterations. So Seth, Enos, or Enos, then Kenan or Canaan, uh, Mahalalel or Mahalalalil, uh, or Jer- and then Jared. Uh, and then notice other sons and daughters. Uh, and then, of course, notice that they all die. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. So this is the consequence of the, the curse, the, the, the curse that's found because of the fall. It's the consequence of the fall uh, right there in our face. And he died, and he died, and he died. Uh, but then there's one guy that doesn't die. Uh, so the seventh generation, there's this case of Enoch, uh, he, he lives to a puny, measly 365 years old, um, and God takes him. So there's this seventh generation. And we talked when we were in uh, Genesis chapter 4, when we followed the descendants of Cain, that there was extreme wickedness in the seventh generation from Adam along the line of Cain with this fellow Lamech who bragged about murdering people. Um, and, but we have an, a, an, a, in the same generation, the seventh generation from Adam, Along the line of Seth, we have outstanding faith in Enoch. And then Methuselah and Lamech and Noah. And then at the very end, we, t- we have the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, uh, and he died is the theme. Uh, the, 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 the God, when God said something was going to happen, well, that, that thing happened. He said they were going to die, and lo and behold, they died. Uh, he told Adam that if he ate the tree, he would die. He told Adam that because he had eaten the tree, he would die. And he died. Uh, but he didn't immediately drop over. So uh, Adam didn't drop dead right away or there in Genesis chapter 3. He lived 900 years after that. Um, and we do have cases in the Bible where God caused people to, to die immediately when they sinned. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they drop over dead when they sinned. So God can do that. He can judge immediately, and, and we have a record of that in the Bible. But in Adam and Eve's case, he didn't do that in his mercy. And so they all die. Um, and we, we talked about uh, last time, Romans 
chapter 6, verse 23, which says, For the wages, and wages are something we earn, right? Wages are something that you earn by what you do. And so the wages of sin is death, the thing that we've earned by what we do is death. But the free gift, something we don't earn, you don't earn a free gift, uh, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So um, this phrase, and he died, eight of the nine men, we have this uh, curious case of Enoch, and then we get some details filled in in the New Testament about Enoch. Uh, in Jude, we have the fact that Enoch was a prophet. The, the Bible tells us that Enoch was a prophet. Uh, in the seventh generation from Adam, he prophesied, saying, and so there's some quotes from Enoch that we have in the, in the New Testament. They're not in the Old Testament. Those quotes are not in the Old Testament, but they're in the New Testament. Um, so, the, the, so we have this fact that he was a prophet. Uh, and then in Hebrews chapter 11, we have a, a description of how he was saved. Uh, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he was not, would not see death. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so the Bible is consistent. We'll see that again in this lesson today, that the only way to salvation is by grace through faith. And that's been the case from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of creation till today, and all the way to the end, uh, the only way to salvation, the only way to please God is faith. It's by grace through faith. That's how the Old Testament, the people in the Old Testament that were saved, they were saved by grace through faith, just like you and I. Okay, uh, also Genesis chapter 5, I want to make sure everybody has this down, um, is a chronogenealogy. And so there's a structure there. Um, person A lived X number of years and became the father of person B. And then person A lived another Y years and saw the days of A's life were X plus Y. Uh, that's what the Bible tells us about these generations. So there's no time gaps. E even if there are, if there could be people in between there, there's no time gap possible there. Um, so we know for certain, of course, that there's no even people gaps from uh, Jude verse 14 that, in fact, Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. The New Testament tells us that. Um, so there's, there's no gaps there. There's no time gap there. Um, and and the, re the reason, and so uh, we don't know exactly why God did this, but he did it this way. He, he, he gave us the age of one generation when the next one was born. And so uh, it was 130 years from Adam's creation to Seth's birth. And regardless of whether there were generations between them, there were still 130 years between Adam and Seth's birth. Uh, the number of years between Seth's birth and Enosh's birth was 105 years. Even if you were to put more generations in between there, you still only have 105 years between Seth and Enosh, no matter how many generations you put in there. Uh, and so this gives us a fixed number of years from Adam's creation to the birth of Abraham, because we have exact number of years from this person to the birth of this person. Even if you were to postulate that there were more people in there, there is still that many years between one person and another person. So it's a chronogeology, genealogy. And so uh, I think that Pastor Gabe put this chart up there so you can follow. In red, you've got the age of one generation uh, when the next one is born. And so here's what I'm, what I'm trying to sell you, tell you what I was just telling you in 
graphical form. So even if you threw in more people between here, it doesn't add any time. Um, so we, we know how much time there was from Adam's creation to Abraham. And we know from extra-biblical information how long ago Abraham lived. And so therefore we know for certain when creation was. Uh, not Maybe not to an exact year, but very close. We know how long ago creation was, and it was about 6,000 years ago. Uh, that's how we know. Um, then um, we have um, the fact that the, the, this book of Genesis was written down so long, long after these events. So Moses wrote these events down um, probably when they were wandering in the wilderness before they went into the promised land because Moses died before they went into the promised land. Uh, but he wrote these things down uh, a matter of thousands of years, in the case of creation, after they occurred. So why is that? Why would God do that? And the reason he would do that is because they were such long generations that these stories could be told firsthand, uh, face-to-face, by an eyewitness. And so... Um, of the, all the generations listed in Genesis chapter 5, only Noah and his sons could never have known Adam. Every, all the generations before that would have been able to hear from Adam face to face what it was like in the garden, what it was like to fall, what it was like to be expelled from the garden, that sort of thing. And then um, we see if we add Genesis 11, there's going to be more genealogy in Genesis 11. Uh, Noah could have known everyone from Enosh, Adam's grandson, all the way up to Terah, Abraham's father. Uh, uh, they all lived at the same time as Noah. And so Noah could have spoken to all those people. And same thing for Shem. He lived for a long time after the flood, and he would have been able to tell the story of what it was like before the flood, what it was like to go onto the ark, what it was like to live through that year on the ark during the flood, come off the uh, ark into the post-flood world, what the Tower of Babel was like. He would have been able to tell those stories face-to-face for ev- to everybody, including Abraham, all the way down through Abraham. Um, and so this is a graph of what that looks like. So everybody from Noah's father back could talk directly to Adam and hear exactly what it was like to be in the garden from Adam himself, what it was like to, uh, for the, what the fall was like, what it was like to be expelled from the garden. Uh, everybody up to Noah, uh, uh, Noah's father, Lamech. Um, and then Noah himself could have talked to all the generations that came after the flood, we'll see, all the way down to uh, definitely Terah, uh, Abraham's father. And then Shem, who was alive uh, for uh, before the flood, uh, would be able to talk to even Abraham and Isaac. Um, so... Uh, the, the, so these stories could be passed down by oral tra- tradition, not by just, uh, I, I heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody, but you could hear directly from the person that was an eyewitness, all the way down through all these generations. And so, therefore, it was not necessary to have it as a written document until it was necessary. When people started dying young, it was necessary to have this written down. And so God caused it to be written down when it was necessary to be written down. Okay, uh, yes? chart on the bottom left corner. Oh, this is just a graph of the, uh, the ages. So the ages are around 900 years, and then something happens at the flood. Something happens at the flood so that the ages reduce 
along roughly a, uh, a, G, a, a um, uh, an exponential re- regression of ages. And uh, we'll actually talk about why that is when we get to the post-flood world. Um, well, why would it be? Why should it be that the ages should come down? And there's a good reason for that. Uh, we, we now know from population genetics that a population bottleneck will cause a severe decrease in fitness. Severe decrease in fitness, a population bottleneck. And so what do we have at the ARC? We have a population bottleneck down to eight people. That should, based on all we know about genetics, cause a severe decline in fitness. And so we see ages coming down, uh, as we would expect now from modern science, but God knew what he was doing all along, and so, uh, yeah, we get a big regression of of ages after the flood. Uh, There are some outliers, of course, like if a guy at the measly age of 365 gets uh, whooshed up to heaven, he looks like a real outlier. Uh, okay. Yeah, so uh, then we, so I, I just explained all this stuff. So uh, that was what we did last time, or what I think happened last time, although I wasn't here. Does anybody have any lingering questions about what happened last time? Or, yes, go ahead, Larry. Yes. So fitness is... Um, so um, the, the overall um, fitness of your body, uh, how, how, how uh, phy- physically, physically fit you are, uh, physical fitness of the body based on genetics. Um, we, we know that a, a population bottleneck is a genetic disaster. Uh, so a population bottleneck is when you have a big population and it gets necked down to a small population. Yes. Yes. So, uh, well, it's it's the 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 necessity of marrying a close relative when there's only eight people on the world. Uh, yes. Now, why didn't that? We went over why that was not the case with Adam and Eve in their initial generations, right? Because they were created with a perfect genome, Adam and Eve were, with no genetic mistakes, and we now know from the study of genetics, that in the human genome, each of us adds about 300 new point mutations in each generation. Uh, the, the human body is, uh, God made us with a tremendous um, system for avoiding errors, for avoiding copying errors. However, it's not perfect, not since the fall anyway, it's not perfect, and so errors slip through. Now, there are 6 billion base pairs, 3 billion base pairs in a haploid, 6 billion base pairs pairs in a diploid cell in the human body in the the DNA. That's a pretty big set of letters, 6 billion, and 300 is a tiny fraction compared to 6 billion. But it adds up every generation. Every generation, 300 new point mutations, 300 new point mutations, 300 new point mutations. And the genetic difficulties come when you have the same point mutation at the same point in your in the 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 the, the half of a um, a chromosome pair that you get from your mother and the one you get from your father. When those match up, the same error in the same place in the DNA, then you have a genetic problem. 
And so, yeah, go ahead. That's right. Yeah, he's exactly right. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that uh, Daniel's my, my scientist in the room that can, uh, can fact check. And so it, it's not the case that you will automatically have a problem. And so, uh, and, and many genetic difficulties, in fact, a majority of genetic difficulties are, um, are, are classified as, as slightly del- deleterious or uh, have no apparent uh, deleterious effect at all. But some do, and some have massive, you know, some are, are known genetic difficulties that cause death, for example. You know, the, the baby's born, uh, not born at all, or, or born with, with very profound genetic difficulties, and that's uh, very sad and very tragic. But most have little or no effect uh, on the human body. But they accumulate. These uh, point mutations accumulate from generation to generation. So in Adam and Eve, there were no point mutations. Genome's perfect. God said it was very good at the end of creation. Perfect genome, perfect everything. But there's these added sets of mutation for each generation, each generation. So in the first generation, no problem whatsoever to marry your sister. But as mutations, the, the total genetic load is how genetics, uh, genetics people that study it say, genetic load, these point mutations build up year after year after year, uh, generation after generation after generation. And, um, and then it becomes necessary for God to forbid the marriage of brothers and sisters. And when that becomes necessary, he does forbid marriage of brothers and sisters. Um, and now we forbid the marriage of first cousins, for example, um, because it's dangerous after we've accumulated this genetic load over generation after generation after generation. But within, within recorded history, there are lots of cases of first cousins marrying, not just in the Bible, but in the Middle Ages, um, people marrying first cousins without uh, uh, any apparent effect. Um, but now it's become dangerous to do that, and so we don't. Well, a lot of countries will forbid things like first cousin marriages. Um, so, but when you get a population bottleneck, you have to marry a close relative, right? Because that's all there there is. So, coming off the ark. Uh, the sons and daughters of Shem, Ham, and Japheth had to marry their first cousins. That's all there was, is first cousins. That's as far away as you could get genetically as a first cousin coming off. And, and that has consequences. So um, we know that he didn't persuade more people to come from the ark. I mean, yes. Was it God's um, purpose? It was God's purpose not to have more people coming into the ark. Uh, but yes, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, we learned from uh, the New Testament. And so, yes, so people could have come to the ark, but they didn't. More people didn't. So we, we find out for sure from the Old Testament that only eight people were in that ark. But even if it was a grandson, um, it's still, he was that age when that person was born, even if it was a grandson. So it still doesn't add any time. It could add more generations, more people, but it can't add more time. Because it still says that amount of time when the per- that person was born, even if he was a grandson instead of a son. Uh, good question. So um, now, any, any more questions for chapters 1 through 5 before we go to chapter 6? So now we're going to launch into chapter 6. Uh, so uh, we're talking about these Toledots. So Genesis divided up into these sections called Toledots. And um, as um, Doug was asking, so the Toledot of Adam actually leaks into chapter 6. Originally, not no chapters and verses in this thing, 
Uh, but the told out of Adam goes through chapter, verse 8 of chapter 6, and then we got the told out of Noah that goes from verse 9 of chapter 6 through the end of chapter 9. So essentially this is the events of the flood. So the preparation for the flood, then the flood. And then we'll see the told out of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, the table of nations that we call it, um, coming off the ark. So preparation for the flood. So we're going to do this in two parts. Uh, let me just lay this out. I've already done through those. but So today and next week, we'll do the first half of chapter 6, 1 through 16, and then we'll actually do from verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 17, through the first five verses of chapter 7 next week. And so we're going to see this preparation, the wickedness before the flood, um, and the fact that Noah is commissioned to build this ark, and then that there's some time lapse. There's 120 years between he's told to build the flood and then the flood comes. And so uh, we, it's easy to gloss over that, but uh, God promised this flood was coming and it didn't come. Uh, and so Noah's building a boat and there's no flood. <laughs> For a long time he's building this boat and there's no flood. Uh, we'll talk more about that uh, next time. So uh, let's look at the scripture. So if you would open your Bible to chapter 6. Uh, so you can follow along. Uh, we're going to do uh, verse 1 through verse 16. And so um, either your Bible or your device, uh, it looks like this. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of, uh, who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with runes, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark and the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So that's what God has to say to Noah 
uh, here in chapter 6. So he tells him to big, build a big boat, uh, 300 cubits long, uh, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. So uh, people become so wicked that God de- decides to destroy all living things with a flood, here in verse uh, 5 through 7. Noah, however, finds favor in the sight of the Lord in verse 8. God commands Noah to build a, an ark, which will protect uh, Noah, his family, and representative animals from the flood. He provides Noah with specific instructions on how to build the ark, not only the size, but some of the uh, details of how it's supposed to be built, it's what kind of wood it's supposed to be made, the fact that it's covered with pitch, it has to have rooms in it, it has to have three decks in it, uh, it has a window in it, it has a door in it, uh, it has dimensions that are about 450 feet by 75 feet by, by 45 feet. Um, so a cubit's about 18 inches. Uh, so he gives them a little bit, not, uh, not measure and cut. He gives them pretty specific details about how this thing's supposed to be built. And so uh, that's an overview of what uh, is happening here in this chapter. So let's take a look, some detailed look at uh, what some of these verses say and what they mean. So uh, these first few verses, um, I want to particularly zoom in on verse 1, 2, and 4. So 1, 2, and 4, it's an unusual part of Scripture. It came about that when men began to multiply on the face of the land, we've got these sons of God and these Nephilim. Who are these sons of God and who are these Nephilim? So we've got this told out of Adam, and it's proceeding from the genealogy. So last time we did the genealogy all the way from Adam and Noah, and now we get an explanation of how the earth became so wicked that God would judge it with a flood. So we have a very controversial passage of Scripture here. Um, sometimes this gets glossed over, but uh, it's not easy to understand what uh, God's talking about here in verse 1 through 2 and verse 4, these sons of God and the Nephilim. The term sons of God um, in Hebrew uh, here, uh, Benihah Elohim, um, and the term Nephilim, the, this term Nephilim is left untranslated. That's just the Hebrew. Nephilim is the Hebrew. It's not translated in any way. It's just a transliteration of the Hebrew uh, because nobody knows what to make of it. Um, there, there was a time when it was falsely translated as giants, and I'll, I'll show you how it came to be falsely. It doesn't mean giants. Uh, this, this word Nephilim means fallen one. That's what it means. Fallen ones. Uh, I am is the plural, so it's Nephilim, it's plural. Fallen ones. That's what it means. Fallen ones. Doesn't mean giants. Um, And so many translators have difficulty with both of these phrases, sons of God and Nephilim. We're going to talk about it, though, because we're not afraid of controversial passages of the Bible. Um, So the Septuagint, we talked about the Septuagint. That's the ancient... uh, the ancient translation from Hebrew to Greek. So when the Hebrews themselves translated to Greek, what word did they use for sons of God? They used the word, the Greek word, angeloi. So that's what they, that's what the, the Hebrews understand that term to mean, angeloi, angels. That's how the ancient Hebrews translated that phrase, sons of God, angels. And not just here, not just in Genesis 6, but also in Job, when when, and it's translated in English, sons of God, in Job's 1 and Job's 2. The sons of God uh, present themselves to God. That is angels. Um, and it's very clear in Job that it's angels. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about people coming up to God. It's talking about angels, and Satan comes with them in Job. 
And so it's clear from Job 1, and it's translated, it's clear in the Septuagint, it's translated Angeloi. It's also clear in the Septuagint in chapter 6, it's translated Angeloi, same. Uh, same in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, of course, is in Aramaic, and so um, there is the, 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 the kind of the parallel uh, phrase in Aramaic uses, um, uh, let's see, it uses uh, bar, um, uh, Elohim, which is uh, uh, the Aramaic equivalent of the Hebrew uh, Elohim. Uh, but it's the same thing, and it's also translated uh, Angeloi there in, uh, in Daniel chapter 3. Um, and that's the, the uh, son of God in the fiery furnace. Uh, something, someone that looked like a son of God. Um, that same phrase. Uh, and it means an angel. Or uh, sometimes some commentators believe it's a pre-incarnate Christ. But, but regardless, it's a supernatural being. It's not an ordinary person, uh, is my point. And so it's pretty consistent in the Bible that this phrase means angels. And so what do we make of that? Right here in Genesis chapter 6, so, so put the word angel in there. Uh, put the word angel in there because that's what it says. Um, so the angels saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves. The Nephilim were on the earth, and the Nephilim were the offspring. So that's very disturbing. Right? That's very disturbing. We often pass by it because uh, we, we fail to realize that that's, that's what that phrase, sons of God, means throughout the scripture. And what it, it's very explicitly translated in the ancient Hebrew version, uh, the ancient Hebrew uh, Greek version that was written by the ancient Hebrews, uh, it's angels. And so we have angels with human women. Very disturbing. And as we shall see, that was very disturbing to God as well. I'll show you the passages in the rest of Scripture which describes this event and how infuriating this was to the Lord. All right, so uh, to continue. So this re- reflects the common ancient Jewish understanding of this phrase to mean angels. Um, Okay, so uh, let's go forward to the, the New Testament to see what's going on here. So in Jude, the book of Jude, which we don't often study, but we should, um, the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter are parallel. There are many uh, exact Greek phrases from the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter. They're repeated, and I'll show you some of those. So uh, the book of Jude here in verse 6 says this, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, as exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So let's let's stop a moment and, and, and grasp what this is saying. So this is saying that, that some angels, fallen angels, demons, did something that was the same or, or similar to what Sodom and Gomorrah did. So um, in the same way as these, this is obviously saying that 
The same way as Sodom and Gomorrah had this sexual immorality, these angels had sexual immorality. The same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So it's saying that that's what Sodom and Gomorrah did, and that's what these angels did. It's a very clear parallel here in the book of Jude. And because of it, God locked them in eternal bonds in darkness until judgment day. Okay, uh, this passage is drawing an obvious parallel between a particular subset of fallen angels and the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and then we get Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 4. Um, it's, a, it's a parallel passage to Jude, but it gives more details. Uh, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into, and this, is what, this word translated hell here is Tartarus, which is an unusual, it's different from uh, the other Greek words that are used for hell, uh, Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So this is all one sentence. And it's, what it's saying is something this, these angels did in the days of Noah. Something that they did in the days of Noah. Chapter 6, what we're reading here in Genesis chapter 6. Something these angels did got them locked up in darkness all the way until the judgment day. Uh, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and seven others were on the ark with him when he brought a flood upon the world and the ungodly. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah destruction by reducing them to ashes so we have it pinned at the time of noah and compared to the sins of sodom and gomorrah uh, he rescued lot from sodom and gomorrah um, and we see that uh, lot is a righteous man which is very surprising if you read just the the uh, description of how lot behaved in the old testament it doesn't seem like he's a righteous man but the new testament tells us that he was a righteous man um uh, so, uh, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. And so, these passages are talking about something that happened in the days of Noah and it happened to angels. Um, and they, these angels are locked into a place of darkness where they can't get out until they're, they're, they're let out just in time to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. But, so, yes, go ahead. So just as I'm processing this, um, then would we say that Noah is a descendant of angels? And no, we wouldn't. No, no, so this is the good question. This is the right question. But one of the purposes of the flood was to get rid of this. Get rid of the, what, and we're, and we're going to talk about why Satan did this, and why God took extreme measures to get rid of it, to make sure that anyone that was tainted by this activity was gone. Only eight people, only Noah, and we get to trace Noah's descendants, right? We get from Adam to Noah, so we know for sure there's no uh, Nephilim in there. We, we know who those people are. No Nephilim in there. And everybody that's tainted by this, this Nephilim business is definitely wiped out by the flood. Definitely wiped out. Yes, go ahead, Diane. So um, this is a major part of the wickedness on the earth, but it's not all of it, because um, there's no indication from um, Genesis chapter 4 that there's any uh, Nephilim monkey business going on in Cain's line, and it becomes wicked and evil. 
Um, and there's no indication that there's any Nephilim wicked bu monkey business going on right now. And everything is violent and evil and wicked now. So it's not the only way that we get violence and evil and wickedness. But it's a particular example <clears throat> of violence and evil and wickedness that is particularly egregious to God to the point where he takes this subset of fallen angels, not all of them, and we'll see here in a minute that obviously there's demons around during Jesus' earthly ministry and, and the Apostle Paul is casting out demons after that. There's still demons around, but there's a group of demons that God locked away all the way back here in Genesis chapter 6 and they're not getting out all the way until it's time for judgment because they did something that was so wicked that God judged them, locked them away, threw away the key all the way back here in Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to get into a passage in Matthew where you can see the demons are afraid that Jesus is going to do that to them. They're terrified uh, that Jesus is going, to, is going to send them to this place here, talked about in Jude and Second Peter. Um, they say, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Uh, don't, send us, don't send us there, send us into the pigs. Send us anywhere, but not there. Uh, they're terrified, the, the demons, because they know. They know about this other set of demons that's been sent into Tartarus. Um, okay, yeah, so it's not the only thing, but it's something that God has determined to get rid of. Um, and we'll talk about why that is uh, here in just a minute. Uh, very good, yes? It says that when the Nephilim came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, so what would the well, nature of those children... So we don't know. We don't know. Uh, it says they were mighty men of renown. Uh, so, it, it, so it's unclear. Yeah, so it's unclear what these Nephilim could do or what they would like, were like. But God was determined to get rid of them, and he did get rid of them. Uh, they're, they're all gone, because only eight people are on that ark, and everybody else, everything else that lived, not just people, but everything else that lived. Who knows? Who knows what they were like, but uh, they're gone. They're, they're definitely gone. That, that's the most important. Yeah, go ahead. I want to correct something that I also mistook because of the way the English is written. It's not that the F, uh, Nephilim were the fallen angels mating with women. It's that... Uh, the the Nephilim are the offspring. The Nephilim are the offspring. Yeah, the F, Nephilim are the offspring. So uh, these uh, angels and women, the Nephilim are the offspring. Um because the sons of God came into the daughters and bore them children. That's the Nephilim. Uh, so, yes, but God was determined to, to get rid of them. Uh, yes. Yeah, so it, it, all the way up until the flood, because remember there's another 120 years. From, from this passage, there's another 120 years to the flood. So there's still Nephilim there. Um, but after the flood, there are no Nephilim. Um, so the lying spies in, in Numbers 13. We'll get to the lying spies in Numbers 13. So the lying spies in Numbers 13... Uh, that's a. I hope we're going to get there. So the lying spies in Numbers thirteen say that there's Nephilim there because they're saying what they're saying is the boogeyman's there. We can't go in there because there's Nephilim there, but there's not Nephilim there, and we know that from the book of Joshua that when they actually got there to conquest, there was no Nephilim there. Um, there's no indication in the book of Joshua that there were actually Nephilim there, but the lying spies said that there were. And why would the lying spies say that? Because they didn't want them to go in there. And so if you don't want to go in there. Think about the stories that Jewish children would have heard. They would have heard about these Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6. That's the boogeyman. And so if you, if you want to dissuade people from going in there, what do you say? 
if you're a lying spy and you're making up a, a, a bad report, you say there's Nephilim in there. Oh no, we can't go in there, there's Nephilim. Uh, but no, there's not Nephilim there. Because we know for certain that only eight people in the ark, right? Only eight people in the ark, so the Nephilim were all killed. Yes, uh, so let me continue here. Um, so Matthew chapter 8 was what I was just talking about. So, uh, and so this is the, um, the area of the Gadarenes. So um, Jesus has this interaction with a demon-possessed man. Um, uh, he came to the other side of the country. The Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed, met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass that way. And they cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So they know. They know about these demons, these fallen angels that God locked away all the way back there in Genesis 6, and they don't want, they don't want to go there. Um, so uh, have you come here to torture us before the judgment day, like you did for all those demons before in Genesis chapter 6? Now there was a herd of uh, many swine feeding at the distance from them. The demons began to entreat him. They're begging Jesus, if you're going to cast us out, send us into those swine. Don't send us where you have sent those other fallen angels before. We don't want to go there. Send us anywhere, even into the pigs instead. They're terrified. These demons are terrified. What are they most afraid of? And what is the fear based on? They're clearly afraid of being sent somewhere before the final judgment day. Why are they afraid of that? They're afraid of that because God has done that before in Genesis chapter 6, and we get the description of it in Jude and 2 Peter chapter 4. All right, to summarize, some particular subset of fallen angels or demons uh, did something so egregious and offensive of God that he locked them away and committed them to pits of darkness, as it says, where they are kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So they're kept in bonds, in darkness, in chains, until they're let out on judgment day to be judged and cast into the lake of fire. Whatever these angels did is linked to the time of Noah, specifically in 2 Peter chapter 4, and compared directly to the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in both Jude and 2 Peter. Other demons who were obviously not locked up there when they met Jesus, they were terrified that he will send them there in Matthew chapter 8. So the scriptures fit together from Genesis to Revelation. They fit together. Uh, if you read the whole council of scripture, it makes sense. Um, so now we get to this question. But doesn't the Bible say that angels can't get married? Doesn't it say that? Doesn't it say something about that? Matthew chapter 22, we've always been taught. Uh, what does Jesus say? So this is the, the, um, the Jewish leaders are trying to catch Jesus in a conundrum. So they say that this woman was married to a this whole string of seven brothers. As according to Jewish custom, if if you married one brother and he died, then the other brothers were required to marry the woman so she could continue the, they could continue the line. And so they postulate this hypothetical circumstance. What if a woman was married to seven brothers and then in the resurrection because they didn't believe in a resurrection, so that's what they're trying to trap him with. Uh, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They're trying to trap him with this, uh, this hypothetical situation that made it ridiculous to think about a resurrection. Uh, and Jesus answered, um, In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the seven will they be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This is the passage upon which people say angels can't get married. 
Notice that this passage describes angels in heaven. So in all of our discussions about Genesis chapter 6 and Jude and 2 Peter chapter 4, are we talking about angels in heaven? No. We're not talking about angels in heaven. This is different. Uh, These are fallen angels that are doing things that they're not supposed to do. Uh, Angels in heaven do things that they're supposed to do. They're obedient. Um, So the passage is not talking about angels. It's describing angels in heaven, not fallen angels or demons, which are described in Jude as angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. Um, And so why would Satan do this? Uh, Why would Satan have his demons do this? Remember that Satan was right there in the garden, hearing God proclaim in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. He was right there, he heard it. And so he's trying to disrupt God's plan. He's, he, he's trying to do this all along. Corrupting or destroying the seed of the woman has been one of Satan's primary goals ever since Genesis chapter 3. And so how, do, how does he go about this here in Genesis chapter 6? He goes about corrupting the seed of the woman. That's what he's doing. Sends these fallen angels down to corrupt the seed of the woman. And he continues to do that. He continues to attack the seed of the woman. Uh, All the way up through Matthew chapter 2, when he has Herod, he prompts Herod to slaughter all the babies. He's trying to disrupt God's plan. Uh, and, And he was right there in the garden to hear that it was the seed of the woman. And so in Genesis chapter 6, he's trying to corrupt the seed of the woman. In Matthew chapter 2, he's trying to slaughter the seed of the woman. Um, This is what Satan does. And so it shouldn't really surprise us that he has done this. Um, So God resolves to blot out humanity because of extreme weakness, including whatever these fallen angels did. So including, not just, but including whatever it is that these fallen angels did. So the result of the flood is a reboot of mankind. Only eight people survive the flood, and none of them are these Nephilim, literally fallen ones. That's what Nephilim means, fallen ones, who are all wiped out in the flood. So in Numbers 13, uh, as, we, as we talked about here, Numbers 13, the lying spies claim this. We even saw the Nephilim there. So all these bad reasons why we can't go in. And at the very end they say, and we even saw the boogeyman the descendants of Anak that come from the Nephilim. So they say that the descendants of Anak are Nephilim. So yes, there are descendants of Anak there, but no, Anak is not descended from Nephilim because we know for certain that all the Nephilim died in the flood. Only eight people lived through that flood. So this is certainly false. What the, what the lying spies are saying is certainly false because of what we know from the rest of Scripture. But I have heard, in my 40 years of teaching this, Christians latch onto this, what the lying spies say, and saying what the lying spies say must be true, and therefore Nephilim must have survived the flood. No, that's backwards, totally backwards. Uh, The Nephilim definitely died in the flood. Okay. So, uh, we have to read the whole Council of Scripture. Uh, the whole Council of Scripture. And so, when we find an unusual thing in Scripture, uh, whenever you find an unusual passage of Scripture, uh, f- try, to f- try to fit it into what the clear passages of Scripture say. Uh, don't, don't interpret the clear passages of Scripture in terms of some obscure passage of Scripture. 
make the make the make the hard, difficult, unclear ones fit into the clear narrative of the whole counsel of God. And so the clear narrative of the whole counsel of God is that everything everything that lives, and we'll see the very clear language in chapter 7 and chapter 8, that every living thing died except for the people and the animals on the ark. And the people on the ark were not Nephilim, and so all the Nephilim died in the, in the flood. It's a really clear story. Yes. Yes, that's right. And so, yes, there could have been confusion. And so that has actually led to some confusion in translation later on uh, because, yes, there were giants in the land, and the lying spies said Nephilim, and so then there's been a conflation of Nephilim means giant in some older English translations. Now, modern English translations don't do that um, because the only reason to call Nephilim giants is what the lying spies said. And there's no other reason from Scripture, there's no reason from that Hebrew word Nephilim to think that they were giants. Uh, And it doesn't mean giant. Nephilim doesn't mean giant. It it means fallen ones. Uh, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I expect that you're going to teach us why it's important that the Nephilim all died in the flood Mm -hmm. in a future lesson. Uh, Mm -hmm. But how do we know, I'm going to go out on crazy land here, how do we know that Shem, Ham, and Japheth's wives weren't Nephilim. Okay, so, yeah, so good good question. So how do we know that they weren't? So we don't know their genealogies. So we don't know where they came from. But we do have this description of, of how God felt about the Nephilim. So this is how God felt about the Nephilim we get in Jude and Second Peter 4. And we get the fact that that a component of the wickedness of earth not the not the whole thing but one of the components of wickedness that caused the judgment of the flood was these nephilim and so it would not explicitly stated but it would certainly be a contradiction if god put the descendants of nephilim by way of the wives onto the ark it would seem to be a contradiction but you're correct that there's no explicit statement of who the genealogy of Mrs. Noah and Mrs. Shem, Mrs. Ham, and Mrs. Jason. Yep, we don't get we don't get the genealogy. And we do get of course get some genetic diversity from Mrs. Noah. Well, we don't know whether Noah had any kids after the there's there's it doesn't say one way or the other whether Noah had kids after the flood, but uh, Shem, Ham and Japheth had the kids after the flood. And so we do have some genetic variation from the wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Yeah. Yes. Yes. One would assume that that's the case, but there's no explicit, it's not written in there. We would assume, yes, that they were wicked. Now, and we don't know the mechanism. So uh, some, some have speculated that it was a possession. So that, uh, that what this is talking about is the sons of God as demon possession. So not not demons walking around in bodily form, but demons possessing. Oh, I've come to the end of my time. Um, so possessing. So and it's possible that that's the case, um, but we, we just don't know. But yes, it seems like that would be a that wouldn't be an ideal home to, to be raised in. Um, so uh, we'll have to stop with that. I think I was almost done. Uh, well, not quite. So. Uh, 
I will come back to the arc and its stability uh, next time. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's interesting to note that this building is 450 feet long. Aha, uh-huh, there you go. The arc is 300 cubits, they're equivalent. Yep. So if you want an idea of what yep. the arc looks like, it's about the size of this building. So yeah, you can look, you can see all these slides on Hope Book if you want. And so um, I'm going to have to pick this up next time because we're out of time. Uh, but we'll talk about the arc and its extreme stability, uh, really extreme stability uh, with those dimensions. Okay, uh, let's pray.